This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode is brought to you by Built to Sell, the online course, which is an interactive video-based training program that teaches eight strategies for driving up the value of your company. The course is made up of these 32 videos along with templates and quizzes and worksheets. You can view training videos in your own time, connect with others, and compare notes with classmates in the discussion area of each module. To learn more, head on over to builttosell.com slash course. So occasionally when I record this show, I get to sit back and just listen to a fascinating story. And I think this next interview with Trent falls into that bucket where I was li- just listening to his story unfold. And it, as you'll hear, is fairly dramatic in terms of the circumstances around the sale of this company. So I think you'd sit back and sort of enjoy the story. I want you to focus in on one specific element of the story, though. Um, it's how Trent was able to get a second offer for his business. And that's so important when you go to sell your business to have some competitive tension, some two offers sort of vying for uh, your company gives you much more negotiation leverage. And I think Trent did a great job of getting a second offer and reinvigorating a second offer when he thought it had gone dead. So without further ado, here's Trent Deersman. Hey, Trent, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about this company, Duran. So just describe what you guys were, what business you were in to begin with. Sure. So when I started the company in 01, it was uh, just a basic break and fix IT service provider. We were going to charge hourly charges to show up and fix our, our clients' computers, and clients were businesses. We didn't, we didn't serve the public. And then uh, at month six, and I could tell a longer story if you want me to, but we, we had a big aha by competing against another company, and I shifted to what is now commonly known as a managed service provider, where instead of charging hourly charges, we charge a monthly retainer, and we do it all remotely, and we deliver a fixed amount of services and monitor everything. Uh, it's very, very common now, but it was very uncommon when we started doing it back in February of uh, two. What was the aha moment? So we were competing against a much larger um, company that was funded by investors. I don't even remember their name. And we were competing for this, um, the client, which is probably still a client of my ex-company today, a company called Retirement Concepts. And they basically, they were um, wanting an IT provider to you know, do their help desk and monitor their servers so they didn't have to hire an IT person. And so we had put our proposal in that, you know, for I think it was like 800 bucks a month, we'd show up for a half a day and fix some stuff and run around and check with all the desktop people and and then come back next week for a half a day. And the other company was going to do it all remotely. They were going to monitor 24 hours a day and you could call in and get remote support. And I'd never even heard of that stuff. And so after a long competition, the buyer called me and they said, Trent, you know, we really love, you know, your proposal and blah, 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 blah. But they're 1200 bucks a month and the coverage is continuous and you're 800 bucks a month and the coverage is a half day a week. I think you can see the problem. And I said, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't blame you. And I said, can I have two more days before you give them the go ahead? And he, he told me the price of what they were going to charge for this stuff. So, uh, he said, yeah, okay, sure, fine. And so we went on the competitor's website, found what software they were using. It was something from Intel. So we called Intel and gave them a bleeding heart story of how we were this tiny little company and we had no money. And could we pay, you know, monthly for this software? And, and um, maybe, who knows, maybe we Intel offered it everybody monthly, but they said yes. 
And so we got the software. I, I undercut the price of the competitor by 25%. I called the client back and I said, well, you know that stuff that they can do now? I can do exactly the same thing. Can I have the deal? And he said, yeah, you can. We like you guys. So. And so that's what got you into this managed service space, which for my listeners, people who have read Automatic Customer, we call these guys automatic customers, right? Where there's this recurring revenue that, that you, you sort of have going forward. You can count on it. You don't have to sort of send them an invoice every month, billing your time or hours. It's all automatic. And so is that yeah. what you built the business on, that sort of managed service model from there on out? Oh, yeah. I was... I had one focus in life after that, and that was increase my monthly recurring revenue because I knew that that would make my life easier and my company more valuable. So you went from 01, you ultimately sold it in 2008. So just talk about that trajectory. What, what did you get it up to in terms of revenue or number of employees by the time you sold in 2008? Uh, around 2 million and 12 or 13 employees. Sales went double, 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 double for like, I think we went to like 200, 400, 800, 1.2. And once we got to 1.2, it started growth slowed and it started creeping up. And I think that was a byproduct of a couple of things. One, as we became larger, I, I wanted larger customers. And so we found this really tricky place where if the customer was too large and they had an IT guy, the IT guy obviously would fight tooth and nail to keep us out because we could very easily replace him. And so if they weren't large enough to have an IT guy, they were only large enough to be, have a certain size budget. And so it, we, it was a real challenge. And this is one of the reasons why I ended up uh, wanting to be out of that business was a real challenge trying to grow revenue with large enough customers. Um, and the smaller customers really didn't want to pay the monthly fee. They just wanted to pay per hour when stuff broke because they didn't really understand the cost, the productivity losses, the cost of lost productivity when their network went down. So we had this sort of narrow space to compete in. How did the which, small company retention rate compare with a large company churn rate? Uh, retention actually was really, really good. Uh, I would liken it to, you know, when you get set up with a bank and you get your checking accounts and your checks and your credit cards, they can probably piss you off a few times, but you're not going to change because it's such a pain in the ass to change. And IT was similar. We, we really got our tentacles in there. I mean, we were the help desk department. We were managing all the servers and monitoring the firewall and the backup and had all of our little software installed because at the time you had to have you know, a little agent software installed all over the place. Um, and so retention actually was really, really good. So you had a bunch of re well-retained customers Building on automatic renewal basis, you'd built it up to two million. What was the the trigger that made you want to sell? Um, so I had hired a out of my frustration to grow. I thought, you know what, I'm I need to hire somebody who's uh, got more contacts than I do. And so I hired a guy um, who was with a huge IT company. He got packaged out. I mean his. They were national offices all over the place, and he had the Rolodex of government accounts, and and I thought, this will be great. And so he came on, and for a whole year, um, I don't really know what he did in hindsight. He didn't lend, he didn't bring a single client on, and I was paying him 120 grand a year, and now suddenly his wife was doing the books, so I had like just all this money going out to him. And around June of 08, I thought to myself, because I was in a mastermind with a bunch of other IT providers who are all from the States, and they were all growing faster than me, and they were doing online marketing and advertising, and it was working, and I'd tried 
online advertising with at the time of uh, AdWords, and it wasn't working at all, probably because I was doing it wrong. But anyway, I thought, you know, I, w- I need to have an office in Seattle. I need to go down to the States and, and get in the big leagues and blah, blah, blah. So I said to my co-founder and the CF, COO, rather, that I'd hired, I said, to, you know, you guys run the show. I'm going down to Seattle. At the time, you were in and, Vancouver. Yeah. And I didn't really, this wasn't a discussion. This was, here's what I'm doing. You guys, you know, deal with it. Because you know, I was the majority shareholder by a long stock, a long stretch rather, and and one of my failings in hindsight, I think, is I didn't build consensus. I just did whatever the hell I wanted to do because it was my company. And so I found out that they weren't really on board with that decision. They weren't even really on board with building the company to sell it. They just wanted to run the thing as a lifestyle business forever, um, which I didn't want to do. So while I was off down in Seattle, I was spending four days a week down there. Um, they were getting pretty buddy buddy in my absence. <laughs> I found out. They being described. The, so the, the COO uh, and who else? And the co-founder. So the co-founder was this nice little guy from Newfoundland, and he never had two pennies to rub together. But he was a really hard worker, and he was a good account manager, and you know he was a good worker bee. Uh, he wasn't what I would call uh, a manager in that you know he wasn't strategic he didn't plan that kind of thing so that's kind of why i hired the coo as i wanted to bring someone else besides myself in who had some sort of vision capabilities and could really sort of help to build a bigger company how much of the business did did they collectively own uh 22.5% got it and so they while you're off uh in seattle they were becoming pretty friendly and and yeah. bemoaning the fact that you were in the uh, in Seattle, they it didn't take long. Um, so two months after I moved, so the, for a while I was first four months I was doing part time back and forth. I mentioned for four days, and then I just moved and focused on it. And I'd hired some salespeople, and I was spending a lot of time with them. And then one day, two months after I'd moved, I get an email from my co-founder. I'm not happy. Um, here is my offer to buy you out if you don't accept it in 24 hours. I quit. And I was like, well, wow, that was unexpected. And so uh, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> Tell us about the, the, the shareholder agreement you have with your co-founder. So it, it sounded like there was a provision there written in that said, you know, if, if, if they want out, here's the formula by which we're going to, uh, to treat this. Maybe describe the shareholder yeah. agreement. So to the best of my recollection, we did have a shotgun clause, um, but it didn't really come into play in the discussions so i'll just kind of explain what how i dealt with it and what happened and and uh you can interrupt me if i'm going in the wrong direction so i responded of course to that and i had a shareholder too by the way who uh, was uh, owned almost as much stock as i did because there was a period of time around year four when i completely run out of money and Literally could not make payroll on Monday. And this guy was kind of like, if you've ever read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he was kind of like my rich dad. And he was a, anyway, we, great guy. And uh, so I called, his name was John. I called John and I said, uh, this is what just happened. What do you think I should do? Because John was older and super experienced in business. And and he said, well, you know, you obviously need to go meet with him and see what's going on. So I drove up, I, I emailed him back and I said, we're going to have a meeting first thing tomorrow morning. And I drove up from Seattle and and I had figured that, that I'd asked my co-founder, I said, you know, because there was part of the, his offer was he was going to give me 200 grand in cash. Plus he wanted me to carry a note for 
and, 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 the, and he chose a valuation which was too low. And I thought to myself, where the hell did he get 200,000 bucks for him? Because I know he never had any money. So I drove up to Vancouver the next morning and I said to, uh, I said to Nick, the COO, I said, you know, you have anything to do with this? And he's like, no, 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 nothing to do with it. And right before the meeting started, he said, oh, by the way, um, if uh, Ed, the co-founder, quits, I quit too. <laughs> and right, right away, I thought, no, there's something going on here. <laughs> and $200,000 was the exact amount that the COO was going to be buying into the company for. So it, it didn't really take me long to get it figured out where the $200,000 came from. But of course, they would never admit it. So um, the one thing, part of the story that I haven't told you, which is very relevant now, is three or four months before this, a, uh, the, another IT company that was doing a roll-up uh, had approached me and I'd pretty much kept this under wraps and made an all cash offer for the company of just, uh, I think it was like a million dollars and I turned them down. And, uh, so I walk into this meeting with the co-founder and the COO and I looked at my co-founder and, you know, obviously there was a lot of anger intention and I said, um, so your offer is not good enough. And I said, um, you know, if you insist on doing this, I said, I'm just going to dilute you into oblivion and you, you won't get 10 cents because there was not a provision in the shareholders agreement to prevent me from issuing myself a boatload of stock so that his position would basically be exterminated. And so he got all pissed off and stormed out of the room. And I said to the COO, I said, look, this, you know, obviously I'm not going to take your terms. And if you guys are both going to quit, I'll just sell it to this other company. And I said, or um, you both can play nice with me uh, and we can sell it to this other company together and you guys can keep your jobs and, you know, I'll go on my way because clearly the working relationship between the three of us is over. So I said, you need to talk some sense into the co-founder and get him to calm down. So that meeting was over. That afternoon, I get the friendliest phone call ever from the co-founder because he realized that, you know, the hardball thing really wasn't going to work out very well for him. So he said, okay, well, we'll play nice with you and um, help you sell it to the other company and we'll go to work for them. So crisis averted, I thought. So I went, I called back the CEO of this other IT company and I said, because I, you know, I turned him down. I said, I wasn't ready to sell. And so here I am three months later calling him back and he's like, well, you know, what's changed? What happened <laughs> is yeah. what he wants to know. Well, I, I said, I got this new idea for business. You know, I totally made it up. I got this new idea I want to pursue. So, you know, I want to sell. And the quarter that we of business that we just booked was our best quarter ever. And it was better than the previous quarter. And the, the previous quarter was the financials that he'd seen when he made his million dollar offer. And so, you know, he's asking me questions and, and he, he said, well, do you just want me to submit, resubmit my letter of intent? And I said, well, I do, but I want you to increase your bid a little bit because we had a terrific quarter. And he said, well, you know, send me your financials. So I did. And then he called me back and he said, uh, how long is the co-founder willing to stay on for? And I said, a year. And in doing so, um, to use poker terms, I had shown my hand. And because previously, when he asked that question about how long would the co-founder stay for, I said, you know, like three years or four years or something. So he smelled some disagreement and immediately cut his offer in half, 500 grand, to which, you know, I was like, whoa, 
<laughs> that was after eight years of work that uh, that was not even a doable deal and and so now i really didn't have any options i was going to either have to move back from seattle and try and run my business without two pretty key people or at least the co-founder was the one really key people uh or i needed to get them to increase their bid and so now i was really freaking out like to the point of uh so i called back my shareholder and i i, I was a mess to say the least this and shareholder is the, is the kind of sh sage older yeah. investor yeah john so we went and had dinner and i'm i'm literally in tears at dinner because my entire net worth is on the line eight years of my life is on the line and as it stands, I'm not going to walk away with nearly enough to make the whole adventure worth it. So I said, you know, what am I going to do? I, my, my backup offer is now useless. It's essentially gone and their offer is not high enough. And he said, well, do they know your backup offer is gone? I said, well, no. And he goes, so it's not really gone then, is it? And I said, um, well, I guess not. He said, well, here's what you do. Nothing. And I said, what? He said, just go watch TV for the weekend. Don't do anything. He said, I know your co-founder. He will crack in hours, if not a day or two. And he said, all you have to do is get them to bid more. Bid against a phantom competitor that's no longer there, but they don't know that. And I said, oh, okay. So I drove back to Seattle and I proceeded to watch TV all weekend because I was just so nervous and racked. I really couldn't do anything else. And... um Sure enough, I get an email from the co-founder and he's like, you know, well, what's going on? What's going on? And I just said, well, I, you know, they were slow submitting their letter of intent the first time and they're slow submitting their letter of intent again. I said, but has it occurred to you that you, that I, I will sell you the company? I just don't like your offer. Has it occurred to you that you could make another offer? And I guess it hadn't occurred to him. I guess he thought I wanted to sell it to the other company. I said, I don't care who I sell it to. I said, I just have a number that I want. And so they uh, upped their offer uh, just over 20%. So they being Nick and Ed. Yeah. The COO and the co-founder. Yeah. And uh, and so I hope they're listening to this because you bid against yourselves, you jackasses. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that got it to the $1.2 million dollar number well, you you lost me because because at one point ed's first offer was 200 grand no it was two hundred thousand down oh i'm sorry okay so two hundred thousand cash and then an, uh and then he wanted me to carry a note for like 800 and at the time so you know that was pale in comparison to a million dollars in cash from the other company sure no when you could get the cash yeah yeah so uh yeah we uh, uh agreed on 1.2 million and then you know in a matter of days the deal was done because management go ahead no i was just going to ask trent the million two that you agreed to the offer from ed and nick uh what portion of that was was uh cash up front versus uh, a note or was it structured in the same way as the original offer kind of cash and a note yeah pretty much it was 200 down and um and then excuse me a note for the balance and then of course i had to repay the investor john out of the note payments got it and for those listening a note is basically where the owner of the business the person selling the company is obviously uh willing to kind of finance the buyers of the business basically you're taking um the obligation on that you're going to to get uh, uh 
you're going to get paid over time. Uh, and usually the, the, the payment is coming from the business itself, right? So, so you were taking the risk that the business would continue to, to kind of perform well enough at least to pay the note. Is, is that correct, Trent? Yeah, that is exactly correct. And I charged them 10% interest on the note, which relative to interest rates at the time was really, really good. And they were going to have to pay, I think it was like 18500 a month. But by the time you took my salary out of it, which was, I don't know, 10 or 11, plus all the very various expenses I made the company pay, which was probably another three, I knew that they probably wouldn't have any difficulty making that payment because the bulk of that payment was already being made to me in terms of salary and expenses, which was going to go away. So did you end up getting the full value of the note, or are they still paying? Every penny, over four years. And that was the duration, four years? That was the agreed to duration up front? Yep. What a fascinating story. And so did the buyer, the original outside buyer, did they ever come back with an offer that was north of 500 grand? Or No, they he, never I, I never even spoke to him again. Wow. And, and to be honest with you, I think he missed out on a good deal. And, you know, the company is still around today and, and, uh, but I don't know, twice as big as it was when I sold it. Tell me a little bit about, uh, so the financials in 2008, you, you mentioned you just came off a great quarter. So if you took the last sort of 12 months, what would your kind of revenue and, and rough profit have been? Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to back into the million two that they offered, you know, what multiple of say, earnings would that have been equated to? Yeah, we didn't, MSPs weren't really, to answer your question, I can't, it's so long ago, I can't even really remember, but I'll take a, a guess. You know, it, the run rate would have been about $2 million a year. I think the previous year's booked revenue was 1.8. And profits were on the 1.8, I think, you know, like 7% was the net, as far as I could remember. Um, it was, and that was one of the things that I started to really dislike about the company is, it was so incredibly difficult to get that thing to make any money. Mm. And the reason was, is every time I would land um, a new client thinking, all right, this is finally going to be the one that's going to push us into consistent profitability, my co-founder would come to me and say, oh, we need to hire another engineer. And engineers, are, you know, they're like $75,000, $80,000 a year. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Hmm. And that just that battle continued for every time. And it was just driving me bananas. Because on all my modeling, you know, we didn't need that many engineers, but they kept telling me we needed them. And I wasn't a technical guy, so I couldn't say, no, you can't have one. You know, if everyone's saying we're, we're running around at full capacity, you have to bring somebody else on. I just, I would say, okay, and then we'd hire them. In what, in what, to what degree was the, the distraction, if you will, of Seattle uh, the problem in the sense that you, you weren't necessarily physically there and able to see how hard people were working. So you didn't have the ability to push back against Ed and say, look, I mean, people are kind of taking two-hour lunches. You don't really need another engineer. Is that Was it because you were physically out of the office that you weren't able to see that? No, because that had been a problem for years. So um, I knew very well that everyone was working really hard. I just think that it was a uh, probably mostly a function of the business. It's just profit margins are are not as fat as you would want in that business um and and maybe we could have been more efficient so to be clear the seven percent net you're thinking that that would have probably been before tax is that fair to say yeah so yeah. so just rough ballpark numbers again very kind of back of the napkin and uh seven percent on two million would be 140 grand uh yeah. meaning if you sold you sold for 1.2 meaning it was around nine times 
EBITDA, yeah. f- you know, fully baked. However, the cash up front was a, was about you know one and a half, almost two times EBITDA, uh, and the rest of it was sort of, if you will, on the come in the uh, in the uh, the vendor take back or the the uh, yeah. the, the note, so to speak. Yeah, and, and we didn't really ever talk a whole lot of valuation math and multiple of EBITDA. In my mind, it was just all a multiple of recurring revenue. And we had, out of our $2 million, about $1 million of it was recurring. So we were getting you know, just over 1x of recurring revenue. Got it. And where did you come up with those valuation figures? I mean, what made you think that was a fair valuation? Uh, talking to people, research, Google, just that nothing more complicated than that if you look back on the entire experience now this is you know lots of water under the bridge what would you do differently um a lot actually so i mentioned to you how i thought i was one of my failings was that i didn't build consensus i would have on the whole decision to you know future the company and vision and going to seattle and i would have uh spent a lot more time getting them on board with that decision um, before I left for Seattle, I think that that would have made the relationship uh, probably better. Um, and I would have been, the whole decision to hire the COO, in hindsight, you know, of course you have hindsight to your benefit. Like I didn't, you know, he was hired because of the fact that I knew him because he had a Rolodex and six months in, you, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't leveraged his Rolodex at all and I should have fired him. So that was a big, big waste of money. And he was the snake that brought in the idea and the 200 grand to uh, kick me out. So there was a whole bunch of reasons in hindsight why hiring him was really stupid. Nick, if you're listening, I don't think much of you. Hmm. Hmm. Was there any way, again, in hindsight, that through the interview process that that you could have perhaps smelt that out or figure that out in advance? Like as you hire people today or how would you approach the hiring differently? You know, I don't think it's, John, I don't think it's one of those things that was knowable. Nick was, everything I knew about the guy, I mean, he was kind of this semi-nerdy, seemingly super nice dude who you wouldn't think had a, had a plotting or scheming bone in his body. Um, And I knew him quite well. So it's not something that I would have, I don't think I could have ever smelled out in the interview process. Now, with that said, am I a professional recruiter interviewer? No, not really. So someone else is probably much more equipped uh, to answer that than me. I just, it's just the way it turned out. What about the mechanics of the deal itself? You talked about, you know, the, the kind of brinksmanship, the, the arrival of the offer, the takeaway of the offer, anything that you might do differently in the actual sale negotiation itself yeah excuse me yeah i think that um with respect to the the company that was making the all cash offer um i'm a pretty honest dude and so when he said you know how long will i stay for i said a year I, i should have just said three and we should have worked out that detail later that would have caused him to not cut his offer in half and in all likelihood, my experience in negotiation is this. There's a thing called the invested time principle. And, you know, when people put a lot of time into a deal, they really want to see it come to fruition. So if we'd gone, you know, 
out of 10 steps to close a deal with them if we'd got to step nine. And then I'd said, oh, by the way, Ed has just told me that, you know, he would only want to hang around for a year. But, you know, Nick, who now you've come to know is going to hang around, you know, for much longer. But I think we could have negotiated our way around that issue if it even was an issue by that point without seeing their offer cut in half. So that was a huge error on my part. And the external buyer's offer, you said it was a million dollars. Was that a million dollars cash up front? Was there an earnout component to it? What did that look like? 80% up front, 20% hold back for earnout. So that was pretty good. Because, I mean, in, it, even if it, they never paid me the earnout, having that money up front and being able to use it to buy another business or do something would have been very valuable. One of my um, semi regrets after was there were certain things I wanted to do for my next business. And because I didn't have any cash, I couldn't do them. I had just this stream of payments. Um, so it, it was a bit of a hamstring to, uh, to not have that lump of capital available. You know, as you look back on it with hindsight being 2020 and, and a few years to reflect, I mean, what, how would you characterize your emotions today about that period in your life? As you, as you reflect back on that period, 2001 to 2008, what are some of the emotions that, that sort of bubble up to the surface for you? I don't have any anger anymore. I mean, I, I hope that comes through. I'm laughing about it and I'm cracking jokes at the expense of my old coworkers. Um, but, you know, now I look back and I think it was a really terrific experience. You know, one of the things I said to my wife, I got married a couple of years ago and, and I said, you know, I learned more about relationships from my you know, seven year marriage to Ed than I ever did from dating another girl to which she was very surprised. And I said, because, you know, I couldn't break up with the guy. <laughs> we had to really work through our issues. <laughs> and so that for me, that was, that was really, really a helpful thing. Um, the, the, just the whole experience of becoming, being a founder and going through the process of everything that you need to learn. Cause prior to this, I was, just, I was a sales guy. I was a good sales guy, but I didn't know anything about business models or financials or marketing strategy or operations or building operations. I mean, I knew nothing about nothing except how to get people to say yes and give me a check, which is a pretty important part to be a founder, I should add, but there's a lot more to it. So I look back fondly and think that was, you know, I, I'm in the business that I'm in now coaching other business people because of this experience and I couldn't do this if I hadn't had that experience. So I think it was a great experience and I think it turned out probably about as well as it was going to turn out. And I'm very happy that I got the exit that I got and they got a business that they're still running and employees still have jobs. So I, I, it just, <laughs> the only thing that I think that lacked class was the way they did it. I, I think they could have taken the higher road. Tell us, tell people what you're doing now, how we get in touch with you. Sure. So now I have two businesses, both of which are quote unquote online businesses. Um, one of them is Bright Ideas and that's brightideas.co. And that's a podcast and a blog where I coach, uh, I provide a lot of content. I interview a lot of entrepreneurs and how I monetize that is I coach entrepreneurs who have, who are thinking about selling or have recently sold and they're thinking, hey, you know, what am I going to do next? Because obviously I have some firsthand experience at that. And that podcast actually has been quite a, the, a quite a good lead generator for us. And so when we got married, I started a, a digital agency called Groove Digital Marketing. 
And so Groove is an inbound marketing agency. So if people are having trouble generating traffic and leads, we can run all their Facebook advertising. We can help them to create content. We can build automation market or rather automated marketing funnels, all that stuff that you need to do to generate leads for your sales team and to do it online. And so the agency does all that for them. So I can either coach you on how to do it or I can coach you and have my team do it all for you. Brightideas.co, Groove Digital Marketing. Trent, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you very much for uh, having me on, John. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I haven't talked about this story in a long time, so it was kind of fun. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.